if you've ever heard the, the, the saying, you only had one job. And that saying is usually uttered at a moment when someone had one specific, usually important task that they had to carry out. And in that moment of truth, in the time that they had to carry out that task, well, they fell short, right? You might even say they blew it. And so, and then that's when somebody exclaims, you only had one job, as if to say, you know, it's not like you had 87 things you had to do. It was just that one thing. And so, the title of this morning's message is, Church, you only have two jobs. Okay? And we'll come back to that a bit later. But we're going to look then at Matthew 22, beginning with verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so it is an expert in the law. We might say, a lawyer who comes up to Jesus and poses this question. And so Jesus responds by quoting from two Old Testament scriptures that would have been very, very well known to this Jewish audience. And so the the person is wanting to know, what are the greatest commandments? You know, how would you, how would you describe this? And Jesus says, it's this, love God and love others. Now, if you're wondering what your two jobs are, there they are, right church? Our job is to love God and love others. And so Jesus uh, describes this, and uh, I always bring up, if you go to our website, that's the first thing you see is love God, love others. Uh, the password uh, on our uh, on our website, if you want to look at our church bulletin, for example, that's one of those things that's password protected. But if you know the password, I was about to I was about to say it, but then I thought, well, that, it's not much of a password if I'm putting it on YouTube, right? Uh, so, but but that password is derived from. Love God and love others. That's what, that's what those letters and numbers actually stand for. And so uh, that is what Jesus says, hey, all the law, all the prophets, and he's talking about now about 70% of our Bibles. He says all that in the Hebrew Scriptures all hangs on that. And so those people would have been absolutely astounded because they didn't just have uh, they didn't just have uh, the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, 
You know, they had this whole list of rules and regulations that the Jewish leaders had developed over the years, namely the Pharisees. And so there were over 600 of these commands, uh, and six, and, and I think it was 365 uh, prohibitions among those those 611 rules. And so, uh, and so they had all these things that they were supposed to do or not do. And they're like, wait a second, he's boiling it down to simply. Love God and then love your neighbor? How does that work? And so uh, what Jesus is saying here, he's not simply advocating when he talks about love. He's not simply advocating an emotional attachment or an abstract love. Rather, love here indicates a concrete responsibility. It is the act of being useful and beneficial to others. I'm going to repeat that part. Love here is a concrete responsibility. It is the act of being useful and beneficial to others. Uh, I mentioned this this morning. It wasn't intended, but we were studying in class this morning uh, Acts chapter 9. And if you get to the end of Acts chapter 9, that is where Peter uh, is in a place called Lydda, and there is a lady there, uh, actually he may be in Joppa at this point, but anyway, uh, he's outside of Jerusalem by about 30 miles, give or take, and he's in a place, and there are ladies there who are weeping, and it's because their friend Tabitha has died. And so they're, they're weeping. They're beside themselves. They're mourning her passing. And so I posed the question, why are they sad? And so someone in the class answered and said, well, because of how she blessed others, how she was always making things and then giving to them to the poor. Her life meant something to other people. When I'm doing a funeral across the street uh, at McDonald Funeral Home and I'm standing there in front of that audience, and it's especially those people on the front, right? It's the family. It's the closest friends that are down there in, in front. Why are they crying? Why are they sad, typically? Well, because the person that has departed meant something to them. Why did they mean something to them? Because their life had value. Their life blessed them in some way. It was something about their wisdom. It was something about their sense of humor. It was something about them being present in all the important moments of of their lives. And so that person brought tremendous value to the lives of at least some others. And that's why the grieving, that's why the mourning. I mentioned in class this morning, you know, if, if everybody that shows up to my funeral, you know, just sits there and nobody cries, I was a pretty lousy preacher, right? I mean, that's just the truth of the matter. But if there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, this is what I'm expecting from you all, then it's because that preacher blessed us. 
He meant something to us. He challenged us to deal with the stuff in our life in a healthy and responsible way. He inspired us to try to be better people. And I hope that's what you can say that I'm doing. Have been doing now for a bit and hope to be doing for a much longer bit. But, and I'll just tell you, if you want me to leave, you've been too subtle, okay? Uh, I'm going to need for sale signs in front of the parsonage or something that really gets my attention. But no, seriously. Uh, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of this church family. Are we perfect? No way. Not even close. But I was having a conversation with someone the other day, and I said, you know what? For all their faults, the whole world Church of Christ knows how to love people. And they, as a collective body, know how to forgive people because I've seen it. Now, what we have to do, though, is make sure that we, on an individual basis, are doing everything we can to bring value to the lives of others. Um, And so, um, I'm thinking about... um, When I think about grief, when I think about loss, when I think about being separated from someone we love, it was written as a love song. And that is the, the, what we're talking about today. Um, I'm not exactly following the liturgical calendar, um, closely, but we're not a liturgical group, so that's okay. Uh, but we're talking about love today, and so I, I was, uh, I heard a song recently, an old song, I guess from the 60s, uh, from the Beach Boys. And um, Brian Wilson wrote this, and it says, um, I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. And so and that's, the, that's the chorus that just keeps they keep singing over and over. God only knows what I'd be without you. God only knows what I'd be without you. Now, I think about the lyrics of that song. And I think about this time of the year. Now, there may be people in our lives that we can say, our Heavenly Father, God, only knows who and where I'd be without you in my life. But even though they did not mean that song, Brian Wilson did not write that song 50-something years ago as a religious song. I look at everything through the lens of my Christian faith. It's what I do. And so, let's insert, when we think about God only knows what I'd be without you, we think for a moment, where would we be without Jesus Christ in our life? Now, we think about that moment. If you're a child of God, that moment that you surrendered to God, that moment that you said, God, I'm giving it all to you. And sometimes when we make that declaration and we're baptized, sometimes we know 
we really understand the fullness of that idea. If someone's baptized at a certain age, uh, I was nine years old. So do you think that you think I knew everything it meant to surrender to Christ? Absolutely not. I learned it as I got older. I learned it as I went along. It doesn't discount my baptism. It doesn't discount the faith that I had because I knew at nine years old, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So it wasn't like then I had to go and often live a life of sinful rebellion to really fully understand God's forgiveness. No. But when we have that moment where we declare, where we surrender to God, then we allow God to begin His transforming work in our lives. And so think for a moment about where you might be this morning if you did not have Jesus Christ in your life. Think for a moment about what your life might look like. Think for a moment about what kind of person you would be, what your priorities would be, would be without your Christian faith. And that's when you say, church, God only knows Jesus where I'd be without you. And it's this time of the year that we celebrate the birth of our Savior. And praise God that He loved us enough to give us that Savior. Amen, church? John chapter 3, John is, uh, I mean, Jesus, excuse me, is speaking with a guy, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He's come to see Jesus under cover of darkness. And, uh, you know, he's a Pharisee. He's part of the ruling council of the Sanhedrin. And he doesn't, he's not ready for people to know that he's thinking that Jesus really might be the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. And so he goes under cover of darkness, incognito, and, uh, and that's where Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. And it's where I come to understand that God is not this cosmic cop who's waiting for us to mess up so He can put a check mark by our name. But that He, what church, He loved the world so much that He would send His one and only Son not to condemn the world, but to save the world through the Son. God only knows where we'd be without Him. Him being Christ Jesus. So, to love is to give someone what that person needs. Maybe they need in that moment someone to listen. 
Maybe they need in that moment someone who will help them out. Maybe that they need in that moment, in that time of their life, someone to walk alongside them without casting judgment. 1 Corinthians 13, well-known scripture that we often hear at weddings. And I, I think if Paul showed up now, he'd say, really? That's when y'all read that scripture? Uh, it's not just at weddings, y'all. It's, it's meant for everybody all the time. If you're a child of God, this is the kind of love that you should possess. And so I begin with verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Woo, how about that one, church? Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I was reminded of something that Stacy sent me uh, a few years ago. And um, a very good movie that came out several years ago about uh, it was it's, the the actor Russell Crowe plays um, plays John Nash who was uh, a professor um, at um, this says MIT I thought he ta- taught at Princeton but uh, nonetheless he was a really smart guy and he eventually won the Nobel Prize but uh, there was a movie that uh, Russell Crowe starred in uh, about. John Nash's life and it's called A Beautiful Mind and it says the movie A Beautiful Mind tells the story of John Nash a brilliant mathematician whose career and life were crippled by schizophrenia Nash taught at MIT and went on to win the Nobel Prize for his theory of the dynamics of human conflict as it relates to economics and um, in a press release it said um, at the height of his career, after a decade of remarkable mathematical accomplishments, Nash suffered a breakdown. The 30-year-old MIT professor interrupted a lecture to announce he was on the cover of Life magazine disguised as the Pope. He claimed that foreign governments were communicating with him through the New York Times, and he turned down a prestigious post at the University of Chicago because he said he was about to become the emperor of Antarctica. And so you can imagine, hearing Nash say some of these things, pretty troubling stuff. His wife, Alicia, had him committed against his will to a private mental hospital where he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and treated with uh, psychoanalysis. Upon his release, Nash, Nash abruptly resigns from the university, withdraws his pension fund, and then goes to Europe. He wanders from country to country, attempting to renounce his American citizenship and, and uh, be declared a refugee. Uh, he saw himself as a secret messenger of God and the focus of an international communist conspiracy. With the help of the, of the State Department, Alicia had him deported back to the United States. 
Desperate and short of funds, Alicia was forced to commit her husband to the former New Jersey Lunatic Asylum, uh, an understaffed state institution. And so one of John's fellow professors at the university saw Alicia and said, So Alicia, how are you holding up? And she responded, Well, the delusions have passed and they're saying that with medications... And so she's answering the question by talking about her husband, John. And then the colleague clarifies, No, Alicia, I mean you. How are you doing? And so she pauses and explains, I think often what I feel is an obligation or guilt over wanting to leave. The rage I've had against John and against God. But then I look at him and I force myself to see the man that I married. And he becomes that man. He's transformed into someone that I love, and I'm transformed into someone that loves him. It's not all the time, she says, but it's enough. And then the gentleman responds, I think John is a very lucky man. Now, in the movie... Um, it all they stay together, and he's uh, he overcomes his mental illness, and and they live happily ever after. Life it really wasn't quite that smooth. It wasn't quite that Hollywood, because in life she felt the necessity to divorce him at one point, but then they later reconciled, and she made sure he was well taken care of for the rest of his life. And yes, with the proper medications and therapy, he did get better to where he could function and even teach once again. But the story is, and the reason I spent this much time talking about someone that I know many of you probably never heard of, is just because that's an example, church family, of what love is. That even when things are not going well, when things are so far from rosy and perfect, that there is still a commitment. And the way that Alicia Nash was able to say, I transform into someone who remembers what it was like to fall in love with him in the first place. And I see him transformed into the person that I fell in love with in the first place. It's not a lot. It's not perfect, she says. But it's enough. And that's what love is. Love is that kind of commitment. Love is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. I'm going to say that again. Love is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. And isn't that, church, what God does for us? That there's an unconditional commitment to imperfect people? I want to, as we work toward a close in our time together this morning, uh, I want to look at 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does, does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. 
This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. And so we are called to, despite our imperfections, to be people who rise above our imperfections, who submit to a loving God and let Him do His transforming work, that we can be someone who walks along someone else, that we can be someone who is present for someone else, that we can be someone who lives a life that blesses others, that gives people what they need when they need it. That we are people who know what it's like to love the imperfect because we know that we ourselves are imperfect. And that is exactly, church, what love is. That moment that we can say, Dear Jesus, God only knows where I'd be without you. If you're with us this morning and you have not yet put on Christ in baptism, then we make the invitation available for that change in your life, an everlasting and eternal change. And if you're here this morning and you have needs that you need to bring before a loving body, then we will commit to praying with you about you, your concern and what you're going through right now. We give you the op- opportunity to respond to the invitation. Let's stand and sing. Jesus is-